You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. Well, tonight, uh, I want us to look at the nature of God. This would be a really easy topic to jump into, right? Okay, we're just talking about God's nature, uh, how the most incredible uh, being in the entire universe works, but we're going to do that here in a um, our, our time allotted together. In your handout, it starts with this uh, line that says, Knowing who God is helps us comprehend what it is that God does. we got to know who the identity of who God is before we can determine what He does. If if God truly is who he says he is, if Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, there is nothing too hard for him. So no circumstance should be beyond his grasp. Nothing should be shocking to us of what he can do. So within Scripture, we discover the glorious nature of God by embracing all of his attributes, telling us of who he is, what he can do, and the more that we understand unpack uh, who this God is through Scripture, we can see, uh, and it helps us understand exactly who we're dealing with as we walk through life together. So let's talk about the identity of God uh, just for a moment here. Um, Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, right? So um, if you think about it, just in in that that simple statement, when it says our God lives where again? God's in the heavens. So if you think about it, I don't know where you grew up, but there were certain people who lived in certain neighborhoods that they were proud that they lived in those neighborhoods. Because if you lived in those neighborhoods, that meant you had a lot of money. If you had a lot of money, that meant you had a lot of advances. And if you had a lot of advances, you were ahead of everybody else, right? So you'd say, well, my house is in this place right here, and so I can do this and I can do that. This psalmist starts off and says, our God lives in the heavens. His address is a place with which the finest material in this world is what they pave the streets with there. Okay? Our God, he's in the heavens. And if you are the architect and the founder and the mayor of heaven, so to speak, guess what? You can do whatever you want, right? You do all that you please. There's nothing too hard for this God. So when we start to think, okay, so our God is in the beginning, that he is eternal, that all things happen through him, all things are supposed to be made by him and for him, we think through that. Our our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so as we think through what the implications of that verse is, we realize this. God is God without our permission, okay? God doesn't need our permission to be God. The president needs a certain amount of people permission to be president. The governor needs a certain amount of permission to to be governor. Mayor, I had to have a certain amount of permission to be your pastor, right? Right? And thankfully, somebody really was helpful that day, I guess, counting the votes or something. Okay, like I, I, I could not be your pastor without your permission, right? God is God without our permission. There is no one who puts him into office. There is no one who's going to impeach him or get rid of him. He is God. There is not a term limit to what he does. There's not a, a secret service that has to guard him. There's not a Senate or a house that will revoke him. He does all that he pleases. He is God. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. And he does what he wants, whether or not we like it or not, right? There's certain times when I get to certain areas of Scripture and I go, uh, I don't know if I like that about God, and what am I going to do about it? Right? Like a lot of times people will struggle with certain things about how God would do, and I go, and if you don't like it, are you going to outvote him? 
Are you going to somehow like sort of force yourself in into a different place where all of a sudden, hey, my idea is better and I'm going to do things differently? There, there's no way. God is God without our permission. And God's version of himself is superior to any of our versions of him. And what I mean that by is that we, we live in a time, and, and I've mentioned this before, but um, when I first started teaching college classes and uh, I had people, I would I'd tell our students, hey, academic sources for your papers, all reputable stuff. It needs to be in the library. And they would cite Wikipedia all the time. And I was like, hey, I know there's information out there. And I know when you Google search, that's the first thing that comes up. But the word wiki implies something that it is information that can be edited. Okay? So if you go to Wikipedia, and if there was something, let's just say, uh, if, if there was an article on George Washington, it would say certain things about George Washington, but if you had an account through Wikipedia, you could say, well, I'm just going to edit that information. And somebody could come in and edit it behind you. And you see how this happens? It's not reliable. It's not consistent source of truth. And, and there's a lot of us that really have a type of theology that I would say is kind of a wiki God theology that we just edit it according to what we want to. How often have we ever heard someone in church say this? I just don't think God would be like that. Opening up the scripture, reading what it says, I just don't like that. I think God's more like this, right? Uh, when I was in the hospital today, I saw a bumper sticker that says, My religion is kindness. What? That's lovely. That made me, you know, I, just, I felt like just a big warm hug wrapped around me. My religion is kindness. What, what does that mean? It's just going, I just, I wanted to turn, you know, to find matters on my own. So did Adam. So did Eve. That's what the whole tree in the garden was about. The knowledge of good and evil. You take that off and you say you know better than God. That's all this is. So when it comes to theology, when we say, I don't think God's like that. I think he's more like this. To me, God is like this. I think he's just kind of whatever. Um, you might have a legitimate, strong case about how, what you think God's version is, but I can guarantee this. His version of himself is a lot better than your version of himself. Always going to be better. Always going to be better. So... We can only understand the true identity of God through the clear revelation of God. If you want to know who God is, what he's like, then we've got to get it from the purest source, and that is not Wikipedia, that is not the culture, that is not popular opinion. The clearest source is the revelation of God, what he reveals to us in truth. And where do we find God's revelation, folks? In the Word, right? It's the Bible. It's what he's written for us within the Word to be able to understand who He is. So, with that in mind, it doesn't matter what you or I think about God. It matters what God thinks about God. Right? I know that's kind of hard. It sounds a little bit like, oh, it's rough to say, but this is what it's saying. It doesn't matter if you think this about God or your version of God. It matters what does God say about Himself because then and only then can we determine what we need to do, we think of, about God himself. Now, the next section there says communicable versus incommunicable. And you go, what exactly is that? Because when we get to this thing called attributes of God, let me explain what this means. Um, Psalm 50 verse 21 says it this way. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You go, what in the world is this? This is a psalmist who's written, this is what God is saying to his people. And I want you to look at that phrase, honestly, right there in the middle, because this is in quotations. God is saying this, and I think this is so incredible what he says. You thought that I was one like who? You thought I was like you. That was your first mistake, right? Um, the old philosopher used to say it this way. 
God has made man in his image, and ever since, man has tried to repay the favor. Instead of us reflecting the image of God, we try to make God like us, right? God thinks like us, votes like us, acts like us, cusses like us. I'm sorry, that's just a okay, freebie, okay? He, whatever it is, what you think you can do, obviously God supports, right? Because you want God to be like you. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I re what? I rebuke you. You go, that doesn't sound good. It's typically not, okay? When God rebukes you and lay the charge before you. Now, here's what these attributes mean, okay? First thing is this, communicable. Communicable attributes are those which he shares with humanity, okay? So there's attributes of God that tell us who he is. And theologians will say that there's different types of attributes. The first section are communicable, which means this. He shares them with humanity. If you will, he communicates them to us. Make sense? So the example here is love. Is God loving? Yes or no? Yes. Can people be loving? Yes or no? Yes. So these are, this is a communicable attribute. God is loving. We can be loving. All right. So therefore, it's a communicable attribute. The next section is what they call incommunicable attributes are those that only God can possess. Okay? So they're... You can't communicate them with us. You can't transfer them to us because it's something that only he can possess. So here's an example. Uh, omniscience, okay? Now when you see omniscience, you see science in there, right? Knowledge, omni meaning all. So what does this mean? God is all knowing. God is all knowing. All right, so let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God is all knowing? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, do you believe that you are all knowing? Yes or no? Okay, so, so this is where uh, theologians will say there's certain things that we share, right? I should have asked, do you know somebody who thinks they know it all? Okay, that's a different story, right? Okay, um, but, but here's the difference. There are some communicable attributes that we can share with God and some stuff that's way off God. Now, I just want to tell you, theologians disagree with this, and I want to tell you where I'm at. I don't separate attributes into these two categories, personally. And let, let me explain why. Due to God's immense otherness or are the degree of all his attributes actually incommunicable? What I mean by that is, God is so other than me, it's not as simple to say, well, God is loving and so am I. Right? I mean, to say that God and I are alike and our love for other people is not exactly equal. Right? It's just not on the same plane. God is loving, yes. Travis is loving, eh, kind of, sort of. Depends on what day of the week it is. Depends on how good you've been to me. That's not really loving, folks. So the reason why I say that is, compared to God, all of his attributes are incommunicable when positioned side by side with the quality of one like me. So, I think of it this way. And once again, people I respect would disagree, and I totally get it, but they're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, um, th this, is, this is how I would view it, okay? I do love people to a degree, but if you take how much God loves people, I am dwarfed there, right? It's not like he's just a little bit more loving than me. He is so other than loving than me. So now let's go back to omniscience. I don't know all things. Do I know some things? Yep. Compared to what I know, to what God knows, it's about the same difference about how I love and how he loves. Does that make sense to you? Omnipotent. I'm not all powerful. I am some, I got some power. It's, it's marginal, but there is, I, I share some of these things with God. It's the degree to which he has it that I don't share. 
And so with me, when I think about God's attributes, we are called to be like him, but he is so other than, he is so holy, 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 right? It's important. When we, when we sing that, that, that song, right, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, it is, a, it is a line that a lot of times holy people not really understand what it means. Holy means set apart, other than, completely distinct from everything around it, right? So when you say, uh, when, when, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, when you got all these angelic beings around the throne, it's the only time in Scripture where God is ever given a threefold characteristic. It's never said loving, 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 gracious, gracious, gracious. Knowledgeable, knowledgeable, knowledgeable. But it does say, holy, holy, holy. Other than, other than, other than. Set apart, set apart, set apart. Nobody in the same category, not even in the league of where he is. He is just other than, he's out there, okay? So to that level, while holy is, holiness is an attribute, it also determines for me the level of what his attributes separate me from him. I do have knowledge. I don't have all knowledge. I occasionally will be loving I'm not all loving. I do have certain power. I do have certain understanding, but I'm not on the same scale with him. And so with that, what I want us to do is I want us to look at some attributes of God to help define who he is. And once again, this topic is so hard. Um, Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first half of attributes. Next week, we're going to look at the second half of attributes that I want to discuss to help us explain who God is. But how challenging is this, right? So if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, it's nice to meet you, who are you? Typically, we respond with, well, I'm a pastor. I'm married to Amanda. I've got three kids. Well, that's what I do and who I'm related to. Is that who I am, right? You know, it's hard to sometimes say, well, who are you? Well, where where do I start? When you get to this place of going, who is God? Where do you start, folks? Right? I mean, the closest that I ever got to it, uh, I was in Tokyo, Japan on a mission trip. I'm about uh, 18 years old. And we do a, uh, we go into a uh, university called Hitsubachi University. We're doing an English club for these students who are wanting to learn English. And we're trying to open up the door for them to know Jesus and so in that, we kind of do this monologue kind of deal, like little um, skit, if you will, trying to explain what Christ had done and what he'd sacrificed for us. And I'll never forget in this little corner as they're practicing their English on us to go, so who was that guy in the middle of y'all's little thing that you did there? I was like, you mean the guy that had his arms open and they were pounding his hands? They're like, yeah. He goes, who was that? I said, that's Jesus. And he goes, who's Jesus? Now, where would you start? Because it just grabbed me. I'd never been asked a question like that. Where, where do you... <laughs> who's Jesus? And so that this is why this question is, is so huge. To, who is God? Who, who, when Jesus comes in the flesh and fully God, fully man, like, who is God? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail here miserably trying to talk to you about it. It's kind of like saying, let me just... What's the Grand Canyon like? It's kind of like a big hole in the ground. Well, is that true? Yeah, but it really doesn't do it justice, does it? Uh, tonight, I'm going to tell you that God's... Not, I'm going to do my best. It's, it's not going to do it justice. But I'll try anyway. 
One of the most famous passages in the Bible that talks about who the Lord is. Moses is dealing with the Israelites and trying to figure out what he might do with him. And it says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now let me just stop there for a quick section. Okay, so it says here, he's merciful and he's gracious. He's slow to what? It doesn't say he won't get angry, right? doesn't say my religion's kindness. Okay, like it, no. Um, this is, just this statement alone, folks, this is all sides of who God is in some way, right? Because let me explain what some people want God to be like. Some people just want God to be merciful and gracious, and some people want God to be angry. And this passage says, it's okay if he's all of these things. But let's put it in the proper context. Is God merciful? Is he gracious? Merciful means he does not give us what we deserve. Praise God. Gracious means he gives us what we don't deserve. Praise God. He is slow to anger. There is a long fuse on his anger. It's not one time and he just pops off, right? It's a long fuse to make this God angry. Praise God. He's abounding in steadfast love. Not, not just a little steadfast love. He abounds in it. It's overflowing. And what kind of love is it? Steadfast. It's consistent, folks. Just like our love, right? Always consistent. Always reliable. Always the same thing day in and day out. Yeah, right. Right? Like I said, I can be loving. It's just the other 364 days of the year I struggle, right? I can't have moments where I get it right. It's just the rest of the time. He abounds in consistent, steadfast, enduring love. It never wavers. Folks, you never have to approach the throne of grace and wonder if God's had a bad day or not. Isn't that awesome? Oh, is he going to be angry? I'm coming with him, right? If y'all had the best parents in the world, y'all know you catch him on a bad day, what do you want, right? Just... Wanted to see if I could get some water in my bath. Okay, like, just best parents in the world have a bad day. Could fly off the handle. God doesn't fly off the handle. He abounds in steadfast love. He abounds in faithfulness. When he says he's going to be there, folks, he's going to be there. He will not fail us. He will not forsake us. We do not have to be fearful. We do not have to be dismayed. Says he keeps the steadfast love for what? For thousands. Just keeps it. It continues. It maintains forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, praise God to that, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see this? We want to go one side or the other. It's like a seesaw. I want him to forgive everybody's sins or I want to make them all pay, except for me, God. Okay, Everybody else, get them. Go get them, God. No, no, no. He, He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but he won't leave the guilty unpunished. He will make all things right. So the the crux of this is showing that God is a, is a complex, thorough deity, right? He's not waffling. He's not seesawed. He's not one side stronger than the other. It's not like, oh, he's really good on the grace and really slow. No, no, he's consistent. And so yet in the personification of this is what we see at Jesus Christ, where we see um, the personification of where grace and truth meet, right? 
Um, when I think about uh, when I survey the Wonders Cross and the lyrics there that will talk about how it's both sides of the coin. At the cross of Jesus, do we see God's great grace and forgiveness? Yes. Do we also see God's immense justice? Yes. And so in this, we see that God is fully balanced. Let's look at some of these attributes together. First one is called independence. The independence of God means that he is entirely without need. I love this. Um, God is independent. Um, just so you know, uh, it's different from popular opinion. God didn't make you because he was lonely. God just made us because he was... No, he was, Listen, if God was doing anything for his own benefit, he would not have made you and I, okay, right? <laughs> We have done nothing but complicate the things as we come around and muddied up the waters. So the independence or the aseity of God is another way that people would say it is this. God is completely without need. There is nothing that you or I can provide for him. There is nothing that he's hoping he has enough people praying, enough people serving, enough people giving, and then and only then can he do what he's called. He is completely Without need. He's independent. And then you go, but I've always been told that God needs me. If God needs us, folks, we're in trouble. We're in trouble if God needs us. Look at what this verse of Scripture says in Acts 17, 25. Nor is he served, speaking of God, by human what? Hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and what? Everything. There's nothing that we can say, God, can I present this to you? You know, we, we kind of have this picture of that God is somehow needy, dependent upon anything that we can provide for him. And this passage right here says he doesn't need anything. He is without need, independent, which means he's not waiting for us to do anything so he can do his job. That independence flies in the face of our, our mentality of we always need to drum up enough support to help somebody. God is completely without that. What's the implication? It means this. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. I'm going to be straight with you. There is no truth that has been more liberating and frustrating and humbling than this one right here. Um, in fact, I think that line is probably one of the first lines I ever said to this church five years ago in a trial sermon preached on Esther chapter 4 for such a time as this. Because earlier that year, wrestling through what the Lord was calling me to do, I can remember always, you know, people always talk about that Esther, here's all the Jewish people, they're going to be massacred, and Esther, you're in this position, you're the, the, the wife of the king, and you're in this place, and if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. You've got to step up to your hubs and say, don't kill my people, right? You've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's not what Esther 4.11 says. It says, Esther, if you remain silent about the Jews at this time, relief and deliverance will come from another place. What? He says, but you and your father's household will perish. But who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That is one of the most, whoa, whoa, I thought, God, you positioned me in places like Esther saying... Travis, we're dependent on you. You've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We need you to step up and do this. And God said to Esther, if you don't do your job, it'll come from another place. God, where's it going to come from? Folks, he's used a donkey before. He'll use it again. 
right? He, he does, he's used the most unbelievable, unexpected ways to get our attention and to do things. And so God's not going, oh, no, Esther's not going to do the job. What are we going to do? He's going to go forward. You fall down, I fall down, we, we don't finish this race, guess what he does? He goes forward. He's independent. He's without need. He's not dependent upon us. So this is what's crazy. So when God invites us in, he's not inviting us out of desperation. He invites us because he actually wants you around. I use the example of this that what the, the day when the boys were probably five, six years old and I had them come along with me while we were taking down two huge monstrous trees in our um, front yard. And it, they were more of a hindrance to be with me while I'm taking down these two oaks rather than helping me out, right? But they got their muscle shirts on, their gloves, and they're pumping, you know, they're ready to go, this kind of stuff. And all, all day long, I'm just sitting here going, like, I'm going to kill my sons. I'm trying to surprise my wife, and I'm going to kill them. And I'm really being frustrated. I cut the trees down, but your two sons are dead. Like, I just, I, I'm so worried. I'm, the way we're having with the trees, like, I'm so concerned about it. And then all of a sudden, we get to this place, right? We get to this place where uh, we get the trees down. We get everything cleaned up. Amanda comes up. And she's shocked. And, she go, and they go, Mom, look what we did. I'm like, look what you did. <laughs> All you did was just eat snacks in the truck and cause me to have a couple of heart attacks the whole way, right? But what happened that day? As a father, I invited my sons to follow me to work. My job was actually more complicated because they were with me rather than they were without me. But for their sake, I wanted them along. This is the independence of our God. He's not saying, I need a couple more bodies to help this thing. I'll take care of it. But I'm inviting you to be a part. I'd love for you to join in. Next attribute, transcendent. The transcendence of God means that he greatly surpasses our human worth and experience. He transcends. He is larger than, higher than, bigger than. Bigger than what? Everything. He transcends all. Surpasses our human worth, surpasses our human experience. Don't think of God this way. A child is this strong, an adult is this strong, a bodybuilder is this strong, and then there's God. No, God is so much bigger than us, transcends so much higher than we can even imagine. Uh, Isaiah chapter 55 verse 9 says it this way, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are what? My ways, higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God is so much higher than us. It's not comparative by a degree, he's just a little bit more than he transcends everything we could ever think or imagine. He is so much bigger than what we can fathom. When I uh, taught religion courses at Lander, I would kind of go into this philosophical kind of vein for a few weeks, and I would talk about and go into the universe and look at the size of the galaxies and look at the size of the stars and all this kind of stuff and kind of show the immense space and whatnot. And I can remember one day I dismissed class after I've been showing all this stuff and how the sun was kind of a tiny star and our, our kind of little neighborhood of the galaxy is tiny compared to the rest and showing them all this stuff and just saying, hey, maybe there's a God out there that put all this stuff together, right? And all of a sudden I dismissed class and a student does something you're not supposed to do. She raises her hand and I got a question. She said, Dr. Agnew, do you believe in aliens? And I said, that's not the question I was expecting to get, okay? She said, no, do you believe in aliens? I said, no, why? She said, because if we're the only people who live, and Earth is a small planet, and our galaxy, and the sun is a small star compared to this, don't you feel like all oh, that's just a waste out there if it's all for us? I said, yeah, if it's all for us, the universe is greatly oversized 
But if it is to represent what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, then all of these stars and all these galaxies and all these planets that are hurled out for billions and billions and billions of light years of which our telescopes are just getting to, and they're light years behind what's happening, and stuff is going, and it's all done to do this, to display the glory of our God, it's just a fraction of it. Just a little tiny bit. Would God create all of this for nothing but... Shining a light on him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just a little corner of the gallery. All this stuff for what? For him. This little corner. Blue little dot. For us, right? God is transcendent. The implication is that God is too high to approach on our own terms. So our only hope is if he comes down to us. God is so much higher than us. Keep building your Tower of Babel all you want to. You won't get there high enough. I love Genesis chapter 11 because they are building this entire structure, this city, this tower, and it says they were building so high to reach the heavens. And then the next phrase is the most awesome statement. They're building high up to the heavens, and God came down to look at it. Isn't that awesome? Look how high this building is. Oh, yeah, I see it down there. Let me check it out. Man's greatest efforts to reach God, God has to stoop down to look at. That's how much higher he is than us. So the only hope for any of us is if he comes down to us, which makes the next attribute so incredible. Because it sounds like it's an enemy of this one. And yet, only in God can it be seen. It's the attribute of eminence. The eminence of God means that he is intimately close to us. Intimately, I-N-T-I-M-A. Intimately. Intimately, there you go, there you go. Intimately close to us. He's not just close, it's not that he knows us. There, he's intimate with us. He knows us. He knows you better than the person on this earth who knows you the best, right? I don't know, who, your spouse, your mama, your best friend, they know you. They don't know you like God knows you. They don't know you like God knows you. God knows, you, God knows about that stuff you've never told anybody about. God knows what happens in your, your mind, in your heart. Uh, he knows the last day of your life. He knows the struggles that you have. He knows the things that are yet to come. He's intimately close to us. Acts 17.27 says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not, what, far from each one of us. We think that God is so transcendent that he cannot be close, and yet he's so imminent that he is closer than the person sitting next to you right now. He's that close. And this is why transcendence and imminence seems so crazy, right? It's like, this, this doesn't make sense. Here's what's marveling to me. God's transcendence is what makes his imminence breathtaking, right? He's so much bigger than you wouldn't think he'd want to be close. But the fact he's so great and glorious and the fact that he wants to be so close is what's mind-boggling to me in the first place. The implication, God's presence is too close to permit loneliness any longer, folks. I, I know that there are people who have departed from you and have left you and have frustrated you and isolated you and you feel all alone. You are not alone in this world. God in heaven knows you. If you think through this, um, I was uh, on the mission field one time and a missionary uh, after church said, hey, we've got these 20 college students that are serving here for the summer, and after I'm going to ask you to do something, can you teach the Bible study after lunch today? I said, sure. What's it on? He goes, whatever you want it to be on, but here's the rule. 
The Bible study has to last two hours and it has to start in Genesis and end in Revelation. You got 10 minutes to prepare. All right. I'm up for a challenge, right? Okay. So that day I taught the 20 college students and the missionaries that were there. I started with the eminence of God and I started in the book of Genesis how God created a garden of which he would walk with his people. But sin took away that eminence as they exiled from him. But yet when you go to the pages of scripture, the repeating refrain through the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation when times get hard, when the moment you think it's going to fall apart, it will say something like this, yet God was with him. Yet God was with her. Yet God was with them. For all of their moving throughout the Old Testament, the people of God continued to move eastward away from the Garden of Eden that God would set up the tabernacle to what? House his presence so they could meet with God. One day they'd build a temple. Why? So they could meet with the presence of God and they would put that door specifically on the east side so that as you were drifting further and further away from the presence of God, the moment you turn around, the door is wide open. And when Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, he has a particular name, a uh, nickname, if you will, called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which makes sense because in Psalm 23, I fear no evil because you are with me. Be still and know that he's God. He's with you. He's a refuge. He's strong with us, with us. Joseph, he was with us. Moses, he was with them. Uh, Joshua, he was with them. David, he was with them over and over and over. Here comes Jesus. Oh, you think he's been with you now? Oh, you just wait. Emmanuel, God with us. And all of a sudden, God in the flesh is walking, living, breathing, operating, everything around them. And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes, oh, you think this is close? Oh, it's going to be to your advantage, John 16, 7, if I go up and the Holy Spirit comes down. God above us, with us, God beside us, with us, but now God inside us, with us. Everywhere that you go, you cannot escape his presence. And what is the whole point of all this? The Holy Spirit comes down and he says, oh, great commission. (laughs) And behold, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. And the Holy Spirit comes and they start going out and throughout all the promises, don't fear, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. And then the whole point of Revelation is this. They will not need a sun when they get there. They will not need a lamp. Why? Because God will be with them. He will be their light. They won't need a temple anymore. Why do we need a temple? Because the temple will be with them. God will be with them. You will see him face to face. He's going to wipe those tears away from your eyes. That sounds pretty close, folks whole purpose of the Bible is to get us back to what Eden intended us to have, eminence with God. So in the midst of it, even in our sin, he doesn't leave us even when we leave him. Eternality, let's look at this attribute. The eternality of God means that he exists outside of time. He's been around a long, long time, folks. This is what's challenging. Um... The Bible tells us that you and I, from this point on, we will live forever somewhere, right? Going forward, we will live forever. Have we lived forever going backwards? No. We'll live forever going forward. We don't live forever going backward. God has lived forever going backwards. So you think in your mind, okay, so Jesus, he was younger than Malachi. Malachi was younger than Solomon, Solomon than David, and David goes back to Moses, and Moses to Joseph, and then to Jacob, and then then all the way back to Adam, and God's just a little bit older than Adam. 
God has been around just as long before you, right? You think it's just he's the next step up. God is as far back from Adam as he is far back from you and I. He goes back to eternity. There's never been a beginning to God. Does that hurt your head? Because only then are you starting to get it, okay? There's not a moment. There's not a starting place. There's not a, and then God. God goes on forever. Something has to exist forever. Something has to. And it is God. Scripture tells us in Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth. Mountains been around a long time, folks? Yep. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Is that a long time ago? Yep. So get this. Before the earth was made, you're going to think he's saying God was there. It's not what he says. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Yes. It's not just you're five minutes older than the mountains, one year older than the earth. From everlasting to everlasting, before that started, you've been God. You had no start date. You have been forever. And only when your head starts to hurt do you get it, folks. The implication, don't waste a life given by an eternal God on temporal pursuits. The implication of where it crushes into our own souls is this. If God is eternal, if he's doing something for eternity, don't get caught in the stupid, trivial, temporal things of this earth. Live for that which will outlive you. Spend your life caught up in the great pursuit of people living with him forever. Enjoying the eminence of God forever. Next attribute, immutability. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Like, why have they got to be so hard? Well, look, we're talking about a pretty good topic here. Got to be some pretty big words. The immutability of God means that he is incapable of what? Change. So, um, I think I've uh, confessed to this group before. When I started saying the attributes of God of immutability, you can't mute him? Does that mean he's not silent? What does that mean, okay? I want you to think of if something mutates. Or maybe you, you, you watch or you read comic books about mutants, right? Which it means this, something changes. It mutates into something else. What this is saying is this, God never changes into something else. Because, follow this, if God changed into something else, that means he would either have to improve or reduce. If he improves, that means that he was lesser than what he could be, which means he is not God. If he reduces, that means that he is not perfect and he could not be God. God is God. He never, ever changes. You know why? Because there's no improving him. There's no improving him. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The immutability of God is this. He doesn't change, so we all don't blow up. If he gets worse, we're in trouble. If he gets better, that means he's not been God in the first place. I'm not going to change. Uh, Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. There, there's no improvement on this. Folks, do we need some improvement in our life? Absolutely. But if we said that God changed, that would mean that he needs to improve, and he does not need to improve. The implication is God is mesmerizingly consistent, so you never have to fear him changing on you. Never fear. Never think he's going to change. Never think he's going to change into something else. God has not watched our cable network television news shows this last year and go, you know what? I see it differently now. Wow. I'll tell you what, those citizens of the United States, they surely got it figured out. I'm so glad they're here. 
I, I did not understand life and the way things existed and marriage and sexuality and all that. Man, just thank y'all so much. I, I change. Because if God changes, that means that something he said back there was not right. He can't change. He is immutable. Next, omnipotence. The omnipotence of God means that he is all what? Powerful. All power. You and I got some power. We don't have all power. There is nothing that is too challenging for our God to do. Jeremiah 32, 17 says it this way. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Anybody here tonight overwhelmed by anything? Stressed out? Don't know how you're going to pay the bill. Don't know how it's going to work. There's nothing that makes God sweat. Oh, gosh. How are we going to do that? Then we need some more volunteers. Oh, gosh. I don't know how to manage it. If God has created the heavens and the earth by his mere words, if he can resurrect the dead, if he sustains all things, I promise you the stuff that's keeping you up at night he can handle. He's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. Not lacking anything. The implication is you can rest in the fact that God has enough power to do what he has promised he will do. God is not short in any stretch of the imagination of power. I love in Mark chapter 9, uh, I think it's, yes, yeah, verse 23. Um, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you heal this family member of mine if you can? Jesus says, if you can. All things are possible to him who believes. Too many times we're looking at God and saying, well, if you can, and he's saying, you don't know who you're talking to here. It's not if you can. It's if you will. He's got the power to do it. There's no, there's no doubt in his power. Next, another omni, omnipresence. The omnipresence of God means that he is everywhere at every what? Every time. Um. Omnipresence of God means that he is everywhere at every time. There is nowhere that God is not at this very moment. He is with you, and he's also with that family member you're concerned about that you just wish you could be beside and help him out. He's just as close to them as he is to you right now. Be relieved. Um, be encouraged. His omnipresence is miraculous. I had an issue this weekend I was kind of concerned about. I didn't see coming. Uh, I was supposed to speak at a marriage conference this weekend at a church. It's going to be done by lunchtime on Saturday. All of a sudden, the boys' basketball here at Rocky Creek started getting good midway through the season. They started winning games. Did you know there's going to be a tournament? No, I didn't. Did you know there's going to be a championship on uh, that, that Saturday in the morning time? I'm going, we're not going to get there. I don't have to worry about that. Oh, they were getting close to getting there. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'm struggling with I need to be in two places at one time. I can't do it, right? So Thursday night when they're beating the best team in the league, and I'm going, well, there you go. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is what I planned on for marriage conference. I just feel like some of y'all need to pray and spend some time together. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put past my notes and just let you just work things out. Lord, will you just I – mean, I, I, I had a plan. I was going to give them some notes, run out, and then run out the back door or something, right? It's Thursday night, last, last little bit, boys got overcome. They, the team started just nailing three-pointers. They lost the game, and my boys came to me and said – you're kind of relieved that we lost. I said, no, 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 no. I said, are you kidding me? Like, I wanted you to win. Like, what were we going to do? I'm going to figure that out. But I know I cannot be in two places at once. I can't do it. God can. He is with you at all times. He's with the people that you care about at all times. He's in the White House, 
and he's in the jailhouse, right? He's in all places, present and available. Uh, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the who? And the good. He's everywhere, y'all. He is absolutely everywhere. There's no place where he does not go that he cannot see. Um, there are nations that are not allowing Christian witness to get in there. And God goes, I can get in there. It's crazy how many people with IMB right now are hearing about we can't get into that village because of opposition. And all of a sudden there's some man in that village who has a dream in the middle of the night. A man dressed in purple with scars in his hand saying, go and find so-and-so and lives that village and ask him who I am. And they show up to a missionary's house and says, some man in draped in purple clothes with scars in his hand told me I need to come and ask you who he is. What is that? God saying, oh, I can get there. I can be there. I can be in all places at all times. The implication is God's omnipresence ensures that he has his complete attention on me at all times. Folks, when, um, one of the things as a pastor I hate is when someone tells me, Pastor, I need your help, but I know you're so busy. I, please, I'm just telling you all, don't say that to me. Do not say that to me. I'm, I'm, glad you respect, I'm glad you think that way. I don't want to hear it because what you're saying, I know you don't have time, but, just, but, but here's the thing that it, it reminds me. I am limited. I'm finite. You're limited. You're finite. When we come to God, if I choose to go and help this person, I'm saying I can't help all these people, right? Yeah. Not God. Not God. When you say, God, I need your attention, I need to pray to you, I need you to help, it's not like he's going, oh, but i got something scheduled already. Someone's over there needs my help too. He's with them. He's present. He's present everywhere. Omniscience. The omniscience of God means that he is all what? All-knowing. He knows all things, folks. There's nothing that he does not know. Unbelievable to think about. All knowledge. He knows algebra and trigonometry, you know. He knows your start date. He knows your end date. He knows every single language. He knows who's going to win tonight. He knows who's, what team probably cheated to get there, right? He knows all things. Nothing, nothing hidden from his sight. All knowing. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. You can come to me on certain things, and I don't know if I'd ever say I'm an expert in these areas, right? There's a lot of stuff. Somebody says, Trav, can you help with that? No, I cannot. Uh-uh. I'm going to look on YouTube and see if somebody can help me out. But I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to do that. Certain areas of my repertoire, I'm just not good at. There's not an area in your life of which God is not the expertise. Nothing. Nothing. You go, God, I know you're good at this. Or you, yeah, he's good at that too. He, he knows all. He knows every single thing. Implication, you don't have to know everything because God already does. Sleep well tonight, folks. You don't have to know what's going to happen. God does. I wish he'd tell me he will when it's time. Because if he told you right now, you know what happened? You'd stop praying and studying the scriptures as much. Right? If he told you, I know all things, now I don't need him anymore. No, you need him every single hour. You need him. You need to stay on your knees. You need to stay in the Word, because if you didn't, pride would come in and you wouldn't seek Him as much. Wisdom, uh, the wisdom of God means that only He knows how to come to the best destination by the best path at the best time. This, this uh, attribute of wisdom here, He knows 
how to come to the best destination by the best path at the best time. Knowledge is he knows all information. Wisdom is he knows how to apply that information. He knows what's best in every single situation. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Folks, God never, ever has regretted one single decision of his. He's never thought, Oh, I should have done that differently. Man, if I had a second chance, I just, Oh, now, now that I know what I know, I'd probably done that. He's never thought that. He is all wise. The implication being God's wisdom provides the needed discernment for our lives. Folks, we can rest assured knowing the discernment we need is not going to come from us or our expertise, but it will come from the wisdom of God Almighty and Him alone is all wise. So with that, is that the last attribute for the day? Man. All right, we got about 10 next week we got to get to, okay? So uh, if these have what your appetite on who our God is. We're going to dig in a little bit more and continue to see it. So tonight, Father, thank you that your word teaches us who you are, your nature. Help us continue as we seek not only who you are, but what you do as we continue to unpack these attributes. Thank you for your word that's revealed to us to tell us the glorious nature of who you are. And Lord, uh, for my failed attempts of pointing at a Grand Canyon and calling it a hole, Lord, I pray that you fill it in through your word and through your spirit to help us to see for who you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.